This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. What an awesome conference. Thank you, Nyla, for bringing all these people together for such a, a glorious um, celebration of uh, diversity and, and how every one of us has a role to play. Um, We've heard so many compassionate convictions, and I say convictions as opposed to thoughts or sayings, because the people we've heard from today, and this panel is more um, of the same, people who don't sit on a stage and opine as pundits, but people who actually are doing this uh, great work, and uh, it's an honor to be able to moderate this panel. I just want to mention a few of the things that have been said already today that really resonate with what this panel is about and how unstoppable leaders um, like these amazing individuals are. Uh, Tansy started off with the themes of the conference, the inclusion, compassion, and kindness. Uh, Nyla um, described how leading with love and gratitude, dignity, social justice, and equality and how we need to focus on underserved uh, communities, um, invest in our future change makers, the children. Um, And Marietta um, had some very memorable descriptions of how she approaches the amazing, brilliant work that she does, um, using unconditional love with dignity, respect, and honor, creating safe spaces for courage and the divine spark in each of us, And she said her greatest teachers, bar none, live in prison where unconditional love um, is supreme. Laura described how approaching children who are uh, in trouble uh, as imagine this was your child. And I think we need, we all of us uh, need to heed that advice. Lindsay I spoke to the power of humility, uh, conviction, compassion, and love, and advised us to be congruent with the moment. And I think that is um, profoundly um, useful advice uh, in terms of knowing where we are, being present, and bringing everything we have um, through love into whatever we do. In the NCRC video, um, there was a statement that empathy is the universal language. And I'd, I'd like to take a moment, since it is in the afternoon, a couple hours after lunch, um, to ask a little audience participation here. So how many people have heard that sitting is the new smoking? Okay. <laughs> so please, everybody, stand up okay. and remain standing. I want to describe a study that was done recently at Carnegie Mellon Institution. They took 400 students and they exposed them all to the same dose of a cold virus to see who would get sick and how sick they got, not just for fun, but they also looked at, with their permission, their timeline on Facebook. And they also did a survey and asked them how many hugs they had had in the preceding two weeks. And what do you know? But one of the best predictors of who didn't get sick and of those who got sick who was least affected were those who had had the most hugs in the past two weeks. So, with permission of your neighbor, if you want to be healthy, starting right now, healthier starting right now, hug your neighbor. You can go to a different row, walk down the row. 
Do we feel healthier? Yes. All right. So you may notice that every one of the panelists is wearing one of the Sustainable Development Goals pins. Um, these pins are courtesy uh, of Roberta Baskin, who's a dear friend of mine, and earlier Stephen Dinkin mentioned the notion of restorative narrative, and there's a whole movement around restorative narrative, restorative justice, constructive narrative, and Roberta Baskin, uh, one of my dear friends and one of her dear friends, Judy Rogers, pioneered this notion of restorative narrative about rather than bombarding people constantly with everything that's wrong in the world, let's call out the people who are leading the path towards justice and equality and, and advancing the role of women in society. And so um, these pins, uh, anybody who asks a question, we're going to have plenty of time for questions later. Anybody who asks a question is going to receive one of these SDG pins as the whole panel is wearing, uh, courtesy of Roberta Baskin. And I want to mention something about these Sustainable Development Goals, because a lot of the, the Q&A that we've had so far has referred to how difficult it is to implement some of these things, and where does it really start, and where does it really end? Well, it involves all of us, and it's everywhere. Um, but the, the SDGs are really profound. Uh, I've been, been a huge fan, and Nyla was one of the people that contributed mightily to the development of these goals, and I'm sure there are others here who, who participated as well. And... They are profoundly well thought out. 173 nations have agreed to these. I was speaking at a World Healthcare Conference in the Netherlands almost exactly a year ago, and it was a healthcare conference. And the theme that, that I was using was using modern technology to restore ancient wisdom and describing how a lot of the new uh, technologies, such as the cell phone, which uh, Marty Cooper here invented, um, and uh, someone in the audience stood up in the front row and said, but John, um, this is all really cool, but I can't get clean water to the people in Kenya. My, I'm, I'm trying to help the people of Kenya. How do, I, how do I reconcile these cool technologies with the fact that we can't even get clean water? And I said, um, I thank you very much for that question. This is a healthcare conference, but I am more concerned about climate change and all of the 17 SDGs. Are you familiar, sir, with the SDGs? And he nodded yes in agreement, and, and we moved on. And at the reception, I went up to him and I said, um, it seems like um, you have some really key insights to the priorities of, of what needs to be done in Kenya. And he said, well, as a matter of fact, I have set up 17 innovation centers in Kenya, one for each of the SDGs. And so... I think with this collaboration that was announced this morning between UC San Diego and the United Nations, we have an opportunity here to become a model like Kenya has done to become innovators across the 17 SDGs. So with that, I'm going to share with all of you the three questions that I had asked our panelists to consider. Now, I'm going to ask each of the panelists to introduce yourselves because I could spend an hour just describing the extraordinary accomplishment, accomplish, accomplishments of every one of these panelists, but I, I would prefer to have them sort of characterize a little bit of their background and how it intersects with the theme of today. But the three questions that I asked them to weave in uh, to the discussion is, one, please share with us how you've overcome adversity and challenges on your way to success on pioneering international large-scale solutions, which every one of these panelists has done. Two, 
Can you share any personal stories about how kindness and supporting diversity in your teams has contributed to better solutions that reflect your values? And three, what is your next big aspiration and why is that important to you? And I want to call out the fact that that uh, I've had the, the uh, great honor of meeting many people uh, who are very wise and wisdom comes from experience. And Marty Cooper, who has invented the cell phone, recently celebrated his 90th birthday. So he is loaded with wisdom. And I don't see them, but I'm trying. Oh, there's, okay. So the, the youngest woman in the audience who's a future leader is a seven-month-old by the name of Esme, who's right up over here. And she insisted that her father come today. And on the other corner of the back of the room is my granddaughter, Danica, who's nine months old and came and brought her parents. So we have two future leaders under the age of one, both women, who are going to help us transform the world. So with that, what I'd like to do is turn it over to each of the speakers, have them sort of address uh, some of the aspects of those three questions, and then we're hoping that we'll uh, create a dialogue amongst us and then enter into a Q&A, and uh, please feel unconstrained. These are these are extraordinary people who have done extraordinary things, who have led with love and respect and dignity and inclusion and collaboration and wisdom, or they never would have achieved what they've achieved. So this is not, as the comment earlier was, bragging about what they've done, but it's what values have they used to achieve those great heights to bend the arc of the universe towards justice. So why don't we start off um, with Larry, if you don't mind, and we'll work ourselves right on down the line. Thank you. So I'm Larry Smar. I'm a professor here at UC San Diego in computer science. Uh, and <clears throat> 20 years ago when I came here, we founded uh, the California Institute for Telecommunications and Information Technology, which is one of four new institutes that Governor Gray Davis uh, instituted across the University of California. I guess the reason was that the change, the pace of change in technology is so great now, it's so beyond anything we've seen in history, that we needed to find ways to understand earlier than we would just waiting for it to happen, what that future is going to look like as it disrupts our healthcare, the environment, uh, energy, society. And so we set up, we work with all 24 departments on this campus and at uh, University of California Irvine campus. Um, and the interesting thing is when we were founded, um, the New York Times wrote this article on us as a 21st century synthesis of art and science. And and it was actually art, digital art, that is on the first floor of the building and is integrated in virtually everything we do. And that's because artists, to me, are storytellers and people who see the future. It may not be the future we would like, but it's possible futures way earlier than the scientists or the engineers. Uh, and, and so that's one of the ways that... Um, we've tried to lessen some of the impact that this continuing uh, set of exponential technologies is having 
on the society. It's a sort of an early warning system in a way for the society as a whole. I'm, I'm just going to interject for a second. Larry's so modest, not everyone here knows that he did his PhD in astrophysics in Stephen Hawking's lab. He then built the first supercomputing supercomputer center in the world. He then was one of the pioneers in virtual reality. He then brought supercomputing and genomic sequencing to UCSD and really catalyzed a lot of microbiomics. And microbiomics is absolutely changing everything we thought we knew in health and disease and medicine. And Larry's assembled the best team in the world to do that here in Cal IT too. So, um, uh, he, he, he's way too modest to share that, but this is a man who knows how to get things done and who every time I mentioned, I told him this the other day and he blushed. Every time I mentioned his name at home to my wife, Mindy, up there next to my granddaughter, she says, I love that man. Uh, <laughs> and that's because he's so kind and thoughtful and empathic and that's how he gets things done. So thank you, Larry. Carrie. I can use this one, I think. Hi, everyone. Um, I'm Carrie Hessler Radlett. I'm president and CEO of Project Concern International, PCI, which is a San Diego based nonprofit. We work both domestically along the southern border of the United States and internationally in 18 countries. Um, I was also the director of the Peace Corps under President Obama, and I have a 21 year career. Yes. I don't know if you're clapping about the Obama part or Peace Corps, but anyway. Any RPCVs, any return Peace Corps volunteers here? Just I know Steve is one, and you are too. Thank you for your service. Um, I also am, have become a big Larry fan. He just told me, I, we had lunch together, and he told me how his technology, two things. First of all, how he has made his own body a living laboratory for knowledge um, about how the human bio, whatever, I can't even tell microbiome. you what it is. Microbiome works. I actually, he made it so I could understand even though I couldn't possibly repeat it. But anyway, and then about how the technology they've developed is actually helping firefighter, firefighters <laughs> in this um, state to be able to predict where fight, fires are going to be and, and really be able to direct resources there. I mean, what an incredible life-saving work both of those are and so very different. And so different from discovering the Andromeda galaxy, which is the first thing he did. Um, Anyway, so these were really interesting questions that you gave us, John, and grateful for them. Um, I was trying to think about this particular audience and what would be most interesting to all of you. Um, I thought I would just tackle the adversity question, which was the first one. Um, there was a, one of the speakers this morning, Nate, I think it was Nate, said that every barrier or every challenge is an opportunity in disguise. And so I wanted to share the most difficult situation I ever encountered, and it took place about two weeks after I was confirmed um, to be first the deputy director of the Peace Corps, and then I eventually, two years later, became the director. But I was brand new in the job, had never worked in government before, and Although I had been a Peace Corps volunteer myself, it had been 21 years since I had been a Peace Corps volunteer, and I was just sliding into my job when I got a phone call from Brian Ross of 2020. Now, I don't know if you remember 2020, but you never, ever want a phone call from Brian Ross. <laughs> and he was about to do an expose on Peace Corps, and the, um, and the testimony from a number of volunteers who have said that the, the, the Peace Corps as an agency did not support volunteers, especially around the issue of sexual assault. 
And, um, and so the lawyers in the agency were advocating that we send a big fat no comment. But to me, as a, a volunteer and as a public health professional, as my whole, dedicated my whole life to reproductive health, I just thought this is a terrible thing to have a no comment. And, and so I volunteered to go and be on the program which was incredibly painful, let me just say, because Brian Ross is really a griller. But um, on that show, there were six women who shared their very deeply personal, profoundly difficult experiences of sexual assault as Peace Corps volunteers. They laid their past out for the entire American nation. And their stories were real. And we as an agency had failed them. In addition, there was a family, the Pusey family, who had lost their beautiful and courageous daughter, Kate, who was a volunteer in Benin, because she had been brutally murdered after serving as a whistleblower for a fellow teacher and part-time Peace Corps staff member who was sexually assaulting young girls at his school. So she was basically a whistleblower. And those were the allegations against Peace Corps. Really horrific. And as I heard their stories, I knew they were true because I, too, had been sexually assaulted as a Peace Corps volunteer 30 years before. And like so many others, I had never spoken of it. I had told nobody except for my husband. And so I knew at that moment on national television that unless I told my story, I could never, ever be an authentic leader of our agency. Now, I had to tell my children. I had to tell my parents. I had to tell my fellow Peace Corps volunteers. And I had to tell the entire Peace Corps world about what happened to me because I had to, know, I had to own my own experience before I could effectively lead our agency through this terrible time. And I am so very grateful to those brave women who came forward because it became a catalytic, catalytic movement that not only led the agency to totally, um, totally redo our program for sexual assault risk reduction response, and I'll talk about that in a minute, but it also became the catalyst for a massive change that overhauled virtually every aspect of our program to make us far more volunteer-centered and, um, and just informed on ensuring the integrity of our work. So it, it became an event that led to the, the um, redefinition of our work in every single aspect. The most enormous reform effort that, had ever, that has ever been accomplished, it was a seven-year effort. Now, in terms of our sexual assault risk reduction response program, we uh, had the benefit, because we are a U.S., we, Peace Corps is a U.S. government agency, we were able to call upon our nation's leading experts in sexual assault, and so they helped us at every step of the way. And we were able to bring in the survivors to help us develop a program. And that program involved more than 30 policy changes. It involved training for every single volunteer and staff, repeated training every single year. It, re it involved... Um, specialized training for first responders in a survivor-centered approach in trauma-informed care. It involved the development of a national hotline that was supported by an external agency, the development of an office of victim advocacy, many, many things. And since that time, Peace Corps has come a long way, and it now advises nonprofits and other federal agencies and universities and, and um, 
and private businesses on developing a um, survivor-centered trauma-informed program. But at the heart of it was people who, like the Me Too movement, came forward with their very personal, painful stories because they cared about the Peace Corps, because they loved the Peace Corps, and they wanted change. <laughs> and I guess that was, I guess that's the final message I would say. I held my secret deep inside me for so long, and it was only when I was able to speak my truth that I was able to actually be healed. And so that's why the stories of all the people that we've heard today, that's why your story, Lindsay, or Buki's story, or Nate's story, or any of the stories that each of us hide here are so very important because not only do they bring healing to us and resolution to us, but they also enable us to, to heal others. So I just wanted to share that. That's beautiful. Thank you. Hi, my name is John Ross, and I need to give a story so you understand the whole process of those questions. So, first of all, I'm a product of the 60s. My parents were hippies, and they were school teachers. And they taught school on Native American lands, and I grew up on tribal lands through the Southwest. Blonde head, blue-eyed kid with all Native American kids. So one of the funniest uh, days my parents, uh, or funniest stories my parents have about me was when I was about five years old coming into the house crying because some kids at school said I wasn't Native American. And I argued the point with my parents saying, but I was born here. I was born here. And they said, that's okay, kid. You'll figure it out a little bit. It's okay. You'll be all right. So... Uh, another thing I want to bring to your attention is there's 588 uh, federally recognized tribes in the United States, and I believe there's 624 in Canada. Of all those tribes in the United States, about 90% of them are missing or are lacking water, sewer, electricity, uh, telecom. So they don't have the same thing that's a few miles away you would all be surprised that less than 100 miles away, there's third world issues out there that need to be addressed here in the United States. Yes, a surrounding. I, I work with some tribes that are really close here. So, and I'm helping them bring in health care and renewable energy and school, education, telecom, the infrastructure. There's so many things that are needed on tribal lands, but if you don't address the infrastructure, the water, the telecom, the electric, if you build something, it's just a box or a building that's unusable. So there's a whole process. Um, so that's a little bit of what I'm, I do, and I want to address one of those questions, the stories of, of how, um, uh, how working with different type of people and caring makes a difference. And so I was working mapping cellular towers or lack of cellular service on tribal lands, middle of nowhere, 100 miles down dirt roads with GPS and a sniffer that, that, that detects cellular service. And I was hired by a tribe. And I'm driving down this little dirt road, and I see this beautiful old Native American woman pulling a, a cart, and she had two pieces of firewood. 
And so, of course, I pull over and I get out and ask if she needs help. And she's very grateful about the help. And she sees I have a truck. And she says, could you help me? I, I really need more wood. Um, and it's just around the corner. And so I, I said, well, certainly. And so I put her two little pieces of firewood in the back of my truck. She hops in. She's agile like a cat. And I think she's like 90 years old. And we go back around this corner. And... There's a big pile of, of firewood because all the communities, surrounding communities, take wood out to these areas where the people live in these canyons and these mountains area. And so the people come down and because there's no firewood, there's no trees in this region. And so she said, oh, I'd like that piece and maybe that piece over there. And there's only an old saw there and it's rusty. And I say, okay, so I'm cutting wood. And, and I look over, and she's taking a nap. <laughs> so I, I just keep on going, and then I'm thinking, okay, maybe I can just close the door, get in and pull out, and we'll be all right. I didn't even get two spaces away, and she said, there's a mesquite tree over here. It's really good because it, it burns a long time, and the food is delicious. And if you cut me some of that, too, I'll make you a, a meal. And, you know, I'm a big guy, and I'm hungry. So, of course, I I said yes. So, five hours later, truck full of food, I take her to her house, and I pile it up, and then she asked me to split it, because now she's saying that she's 90 years old, and she's old, and she's sore, and I think she's playing me. And so I split her wood. Two hours later, I had the most delicious meal in the world, And that night, I slept like a baby in the back of my truck. So a funny thing is I have a lot of friends who live in that region, and I have even more friends now because of that, because she is a great-great-grandmother, and her her children, her grandchildren, great-grandchildren all appreciate what I did. And so skip 12 years later, and... If you don't know this, Native American people are very superstitious. And so they're, they worry about all kinds of things. And so one of my friends, and by the way, they still don't have telephone or running water out there. They have electric, but it's questionable. Uh, uh, what else? No telecom. Did I say that? No cellular? No cell. Anyway, so I talk to them infrequently, but when I'm in the area, I'll come in. And they said, hey, uh, John, there's a a wood fairy that comes about once a year and drops off piles of wood at certain people's homes. And so my children, I have uh, boys, uh, 30, 27, and 18. And so they like to make fun of me and call me the wood fairy. And I said, well, if I'm the wood fairy, you guys are my wood sprites. And so... So every year, right around Thanksgiving, all the boys get in my truck, and we go middle of the night to the middle of nowhere on the Navajo Nation, and we have generators, and we'll cut wood, and then we'll, we'll, I am the wood fairy, and we'll deliver it 
And we can't take it to their houses. We need to leave it at the entryway because if we get too close, those little old ladies, they have big sticks and big dogs, and sometimes they have guns, and they'll shoot at you. So um, that's from this, that point on, I, I never have any issues going to, to uh, council meetings or chapter house. They're called chapter houses on the Navajo Nation. And to get things moved forward, I have huge support. And then if I ever run into problems, I just throw out my mom's name, and, and that usually works. Um, and so the key thing in my life and what they just pounded into my brother and my sister and I growing up is make a difference. Whatever you do, make a difference. And that's what I'm trying to do. So I'm an advocate, and I help. And I don't like taking uh, um, praise for what I do because that's not who I am. I like helping and making a difference with the Native American tribes. And with that, there's all kinds of sustainable um, opportunities for anyone who wants to develop on Native American lands because there's all kinds of benefits to work on Native American lands. If you're a developer, you don't have to buy the land. You no sales tax, long-term leases, and a workforce that's right there, living right there. You don't have to import them in. They're right there, and they're willing to work. They're amazing people. Um, so that's what I'd like to share. Thank you. I, I'm just going to tell a very quick story that I'll anonymize John, so don't worry. Um, I spoke to John. He was in Vegas on Wednesday night, driving first home and then to San in Arizona and then to San Diego. And he was driving someone back to their home because they had lost their keys to their car. And so he went out of his way to drop them off at home, got 45 minutes closer to his home, got a phone call saying, I left my wallet in your car. Can you please come back and give me my wallet? So John, of course, being the kind, compassionate, and inclusive person he is, turned around, drove 45 minutes back to his home. His wife was there. He handed the wallet to the wife, and the wife said, oh, he's in a bar now. Could you please deliver it to a bar? And just in case you're wondering, John does have his limits. He said, no, here's his wallet. Goodbye. <laughs> he owes me big now. <laughs> and now Arlene, please. Uh, she's an amazing entrepreneur, pioneer, um, and someone who has been breaking the glass ceiling as a woman entrepreneur um, for uh, many years. And, and I'll, I'll just mention that if you know the the cell phone called the Jitterbug that was designed for people um, for ease of use, which then became a whole set of services called Great Call. That was the company she started, was recently acquired by CVS for $800 million, something. Uh, Best Buy. Best Buy, sorry, $800 million. So this is someone who has um, uh, overcome all kinds of challenges um, to succeed over and over again and has yet another um, startup that she's doing right now. So, Arlene. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I have to tell you that there is a lot of work going on to light up Indian reservations across the country by the telecom, by a lot of us that are in the telecom field. So I'm hoping we'll, we'll be able to help you. Um, 
I guess I, I don't have uh, those heart-wrenching stories that you have. I grew up in a, a family in South Central Los Angeles. Um, I had two older brothers that were pretty tough on me, and so I learned how to be tough. I had a very tough father. He was an entrepreneur. And um, so I learned how, I, I guess I learned how to have pretty thick skin, which gave me the courage to um, try to do things that hadn't been done before. All of the businesses that I have started or been involved in have never been done before. That started in the mobile telephone business, the paging business, um, into cellular, had never been done. Um, the one thing that I'm really proud of and that I never had an interest in economically was that my team developed the first uh, prepaid systems that supported the deployment of cellular services around the world and allowed people that didn't have the funds or the credit to get cellular phones to get them. And those phones were used by, especially in underdeveloped countries, to provide services to communities and to particularly with women who were trying to create a path out of poverty. So I think that um, if I were going to talk about the most important thing that I've done, it was to get that started. It was about 19, I don't know, 80, 70 eight or 79 when we started that and cellular prepaid became uh, the predominant way that cell phones and cell phone service got paid for around the world and is still today uh, the predominant way cell phones service gets paid for. Um, going back to my childhood, I grew up in South Central LA. South Central LA at the time was an evolving diverse community um, the women that I worked with almost all, almost categorically were black women that worked for my father in our business. And I worked right alongside of them uh, managing mobile telephone calls. What I did learn uh, about the community at that time was a lot of those women came to work to be safe. <laughs> and it was astounding to me. Um, then, uh, when I went on later in my life, uh, most of the work that I did was what's called business to business or B2B. We were serving communities of technologists that were bringing up new systems and that include paging and cellular and other business to business activities that help support those businesses go, go to market. Um, the real change in my life came when we started serving consumers and I became um, a promoter of business to consumer or B2C. And that was when we started a business back in the mid 80s or mid 90s that was serving, um, uh, selling cellular phones that were really simple, like three buttons to consumers who just wanted them for safety. And most of the consumers of those services were seniors. So what we learned about that market was, or what I had learned was 
the carriers aren't going to serve, uh, what do they call them, high-priority customers. And that's, that's, that includes, by the way, the Indian reservations. And so the, the investment was going into selling cellular services to enterprises and to people in business and whatever. And, of course, they had this prepaid thing. But the development didn't go to the people who only wanted these things for safety or a little bit of service with their families when they had issues. So we went on after the mid-90s. Uh, at 2004, we went into a partnership with Samsung to build cellular phones and a service that was complete that simplified the acquisition of customers who really wanted uh, just to have these phones for those purposes that I discussed. And that company today is a uh, great call. It's now owned by Best Buy. What's really important about what happened is that my vision to bring that product to market was happening not in the, the mid-90s, but in the early part of the century, was to build a platform so that underserved markets and new technologies could be developed for people who were technologically impaired somehow. Some of us are. Anybody out there technologically impaired? Yeah. So that was the purpose that we set out. And of course, when economics started, the issues that you have to try to overcome, the investors in our company didn't uh, require the company to go on and execute a broader strategy to bring more technology and simplify it to the point where cutting-edge technologies could now be used by people that weren't likely to adopt. And so um, we've started that again. We've got a new platform, another purpose, a different kind of device. And sometime next year, you'll see this um, coming into the market. But that is our purpose. We want to bring technology that is usually developed and implemented for people that want to figure out how it works to people who don't want to figure out how it works. <laughs> so we'll be doing that again next year. And I'm um, really grateful because the name of the company is Rethink. It starts with a W. Our primary market is women. And most of our staff today are women. So, thank you. Marty, please go ahead. Well, thanks, John, for uh, making me last, because now I could explain to everybody what everybody else meant to say when they spoke. <laughs> and and uh, you know, I guess you know who I am, and, and you know how old I am. And, <laughs> and, and uh, thank you, John, for explaining that uh, we old people still have a little bit of life left in us. <laughs> how many startups do you have going now, Marty? How many startups are you involved in right now? I guess we've done about seven or eight, right? Seven or eight startups. <laughs> Marty's my husband. 
<laughs> I concealed that deliberately. Thank you, Arlene. Oh. No, 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 for your benefit. Yeah, 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 yeah. We hang out together. Yeah, right. <laughs> I was going to get to that to tell you that she's my wife, but now you know that too. <laughs> I, I, uh, as John has pointed out, uh, I've had a long career. I have pretended to be uh, an engineer, an executive, a, uh, an entrepreneur. Uh, but I have to tell you, the only thing I've ever done really well is to be a futurist. And you might ask, what is a futurist? Well, a futurist is really a dreamer. And I am superb at dreaming. And I'm going to challenge you, before we finish this thing, to do a little dreaming yourself. But I know all about the future because I spend a good part of my life there. While you guys are out earning a living and working hard, I sit around uh, in this dream world and think about what the world could be if I was in control and if things were the way I wanted them to be. So that's, uh, there is some acid to that. So uh, I wanted to take this opportunity to defend the cell phone from this lady that uh, talked to John and said that uh, water is more important than cell phone. What, what is the biggest problem? I know we've addressed many problems here today. What, what is the biggest single problem in the world today? Climate change. No. No? No, it, it is poverty. There are so many people in the world that are not worried about climate change that don't have enough to eat. No, uh, uh, we are fixated on the smartphone, which I don't find to be a very uh, attractive device. Uh, In fact, I think its uh, smartphone is suboptimal in almost every respect. I mean, it's really not a very good phone, even though... I mean, imagine you know, you're calling this a phone. We've got a flat piece of, of plastic that you just have to stick up your head, uh, next to your head and hold it in an in uh, uncomfortable position in order to make a phone call. So the smartphone is a suboptimal phone. It's a suboptimal television set. It's suboptimal in every respect. And we're going to fix that someday. But meanwhile... What has happened in Africa, and this is from a, as a result of a United Nations study, over the last 23 years, 1.2 billion people have moved out of severe poverty. They're still poor, but they are in a new category, primarily as a result of the cell phone being available and lifting up the quality of life of virtually everybody on the continent. Uh, the same kinds of things are happening in uh, India, uh, where you have a, a, uh, a poor woman in a village, uh, gets a microloan, uh, uh, acquires a cell phone, provides service to the farmers or the fishermen in that village, who then can call the neighboring villages to find out how they can get a better price for their products and their standard of living goes up. And we have situations in Mexico where people are getting eye examinations with a, uh, from a doctor in Mexico City and they're in a village way out in the, in the wilderness and they have a, a, a device that costs just a few dollars that fits on a cell phone and they can have this doctor in Mexico City uh, diagnose uh, eye disease. Uh, and the same thing has happened with a very similar device that allows uh, a, uh, a nurse in an equally remote village 
uh, to do uh, uh, sonic measurements on a pregnant woman. So all of these things are being done, most of them with ordinary phones, with flip phones not and feature phones, and not this uh, wonderful technological device you know, that really we haven't learned how to use yet, but we're going to lose. So, so I just thought I'd do, uh, yeah. defend ourselves a little bit. We have only started to understand what the ability of people being able to communicate, to collaborate, to do things together, regardless of where they are, regardless of what time it is, the cell phone is just beginning to become useful. And I'll just add one minor point. Um, Marty told me many years ago that right after inventing the cell phone, one of his first dreams was this thing. I mean, remember, this is way back in the era where you were meeting your first person and holding a cell phone. His dream at that time was this is going to radically transform healthcare. So, Congratulations, Marty, for realizing yet another dream because it is totally transforming healthcare. Carrie had a comment she wanted to make in response, and then we're going to have a little bit of a discussion amongst us, and then we'll go to Q&A. I also want to defend the cell phone. I've spent my entire life doing international development work, and what you're saying is absolutely accurate. I was in Tanzania last week, and I was in very remote northern Tanzania, sort of next to the Serengeti, and I was with a Maasai tribe. And actually, the Maasai's are very much affected by climate change because the places where they, they're hurting people, so all of their, um, their wealth comes from herding cows and goats. And their grazing lands that they've been grazing on for millennia are disappearing because of climate change. And so using a very... Uh, an Android device. It's a smartphone. It's a very simple smartphone. Um, PCI was working with Google and the Google engineers using the same technology that we have to help us find, you know, the local restaurant, what have you. It's GPS technology. Partnered with hydrologic data from um, NOAA and Google Earth data. Um, these Maasai farmers, pastoralist farmers, are now able to find clean water, actually. They are finding, it, it's basically like ways for pastoralist farmers, they're able to find the quickest pathway to clean water and or water holes for their animals and green pasture land. And it has already cut herd mortality by 50%, has improved animal health, and it has improved human health as a result because they are their incomes are, are growing because they're able to maintain their herbs. In addition, because so much more so many more of their um, cows are living. They don't have to have as many cows because before, if they thought they needed 50 to sustain their family, they had to have 100. Now they only have to have 60. So you can see that already in terms of climate change, um, they are able to have a lighter footprint. So cell phone technology is changing so many things in the developing world. All the things you've been saying are true in terms of, I, I saw a woman who was using a smartphone to... On a, with a, uh, an ultrasound to be able to detect, uh, you know, fetal heartbeat and um, what have you. And it has, it has changed the world. So I want to thank you for that. That was an amazing discovery. Yes. I do, however, think climate change is a huge issue. <laughs> well, I think Carrie makes a very good point about any of these leading-edge technologies. I mean... You know, we're blessed to be here at 
UC San Diego and you heard from our chancellor and executive vice chancellor, you're here from the prior uh, executive vice chancellor at the end. In, you know, of course, we pride ourselves on being at the very cutting edge of the newest technology for the internet and for scientific visualization, uh, you know, being able to digitize uh, human bodies so that we can actually personalize healthcare uh, instead of just uh, having this uh, one size fits all. But when it comes to the broader engagement, how does UC San Diego, and particularly with all of our federal grants, uh, how do we uh, aggressively try to bring in a broader uh, early adoption of this? And so I'm a principal investigator of now actually three different National Science Foundation grants on the future of the Internet. Um, and so what we do is actually work with the minority-serving institutions. Navajo Tech, I might say, has been one of our great partners, Jackson State uh, in Mississippi. Uh, and a lot of the, uh, you know, there's about 20 states uh, called EPSCOR that get the least money from the federal government for research on a competitive basis. So there's actually a program in NSF to encourage them to be more competitive. And so, for instance, as I'm building this next generation internet across the country, the groups that have been the most uh, innovative, I would say, and the most uh, eager to get involved are those kind of states. So Arkansas, uh, Oklahoma, Kansas, Nebraska, South Dakota, these are the ones who came to us here at UC San Diego and said, we want to be part of this. And so, uh, you know, this... this uh, inclusion lifts everybody up faster. I mean, that if, if you don't do this, uh, you know, I, for instance, um, this has always largely been a male, uh, I might say, white male activity. So I've, uh, as principal investigator, you can choose your co-principal investigators. And three of mine are uh, female, uh, one's Hispanic. Uh, we partner... Yes, with all the UC campuses, Stanford, Caltech, USC. Uh, but we also have at least um, eight minority-serving institutions that are in the uh, inner circle of this uh, new technology. Uh, and it's very rewarding. You know, I went down to Jackson State um, to talk about artificial intelligence and, and the future of machine learning and that sort of thing. I was blown away by the quality of the students, they're, um, I mean, they were just great. I mean, I love our students, of course, but honestly, I was more impressed in some ways with the students at Jackson State than a lot of the students even at UC San Diego. And I, I think we underestimate this. The Navajo Tech people, you know, they, they not only uh, were working on how do we, you know, in California, you've got the mountains over here, so you can sort of look down on all of the area that's going to be in wildfires. Um, but to do that, you have to have high-speed wireless up to the mountaintops and back. Um, and the number of the Native American reservation uh, that we're working with this said, well, you know, we are going to make solar versions of that. <laughs> and then they've started moving them out to the reservations, which, of course, they have huge amounts of solar energy. They're very, uh, you know, very rich in renewable resources. Uh, and so then they just learned how to do it, and this 
uh, went about you know rolling it out uh, uh, across much of the southwest. Uh, so this inclusion is actually, I think, a uh, a very winning uh, sort of front end technology, and 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 it's not something you sort of do as an afterthought, because fundamentally, just like we heard with the cell phones, it's the whole world using new technologies. That's what makes the great markets. That's what enables all the new uh, companies to go, the wealth creation, everything else. But it needs to be that way from the beginning. I had some fascinating discussions here about India uh, with one of our colleagues uh, who is working in healthcare there. And um, it makes so much more sense to be doing a lot of the clinical trials there. Uh, you can get massive numbers of people involved. But we're all humans, so what you're learning from those is actually going to help everybody. It just may be easier to do it there, and the need may be greater. So you have two good reasons for doing it. John, I'd like to say something about that. Um, uh, to, to today, we're working on trying to create a, an effort at UCSD, another effort that... Um, addresses the privacy, data privacy problem, which we think is, is a huge problem. And um, the, there's a group here at San Diego that's entertaining the idea of setting up some work to do that. I wanted to say that sort of in the back of my mind, uh, since I've lived in San Diego for about 30 years, <clears throat> I believe that San Diego is uniquely positioned to work on this problem. Why? Because we have a, an abundance of bio here, abundance of healthcare, abundance of technology, a whole bunch of cybersecurity people. And when I think about San Diego, and we don't really have a terrific brand, like we've got this America's greatest city, but you've got Silicon Valley, and you've got you know the entertainment industry in Los Angeles, and you've got... <clears throat> Uh, New York has got its brand, so the Big Apple and so on. San Diego really doesn't have a brand around what really goes on here. And what I would say goes on in San Diego is serious stuff, very serious research, very serious technology, very serious companies doing serious work. And the people that work there are enjoying the benefits of a beautiful place to live and wonderful recreation. And so I think this notion that we're creating in San Diego uh, compassion and competency, that's what we've really got here. We've got compassion and competency. And there's things that we can do here with the diversity we have in this community, being a border town, et cetera, that I don't think could be done other places. So I encourage the work with the universities here to start these kinds of things like what Nile is doing. It's fantastic. And we can own those. We can spread it from San Diego. So I hope those of you in the audience that live here help us do that. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.